Well, we come to this morning as the end of our parable series, uh, walking through a number of the parables of Jesus. I um, was reflecting this week a little bit on this, particularly when I got to this passage. You know, one of the, one of the, the, the ways Jesus is described in fulfilling uh, all the roles of the Old Testament is Jesus is said to have, he is the, um, the perfect prophet, the perfect priest, and the perfect king. And, you know, the priest part, you get a lot in Hebrews, and yeah, he's the sacrifice, and he makes the way into the, and the king, yes, he's ascended into heaven. It's like, okay, the prophet parts, um, you know, the prophet part, that's, I've never, I don't know why I've never really connected as much, but walking through these parables and the teachings of Jesus has brought it home for me. He is the, the perfect prophet. Jesus, Jesus' words are so hard and yet so life-giving. And here we are in Matthew chapter 25. This is one of his last parables that he's going to give before he goes to the cross, which is actually where we're going to go next. For the next five weeks, we're going to be looking at essentially a, a passion of the Christ, the, the days and the, the, the events leading up to the crucifixion. It'll begin next week. Ben Weber is going to be preaching on the betrayal of Jesus next Sunday. But this morning, we finish up with one last parable. Here's what it says, Matthew 25, verses 14 through 30. Read along in your own Bibles as I read out loud. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants. By the way, in chapter 25, verse 1, it says that the kingdom of heaven is like, again. For the kingdom of heaven will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted them to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one to each according to his ability, and then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after that long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them, and he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little, and I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Entered in the joy of your master. And he also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered seed. So I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servants, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have at least received what my own, what my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has more, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away." And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Well, let's, um, this is a difficult passage. And so let's start with something a little bit happier. 
and some crowd participation. In 1963, there was a, the Billboard number one hit was a song sung by the angels, and it went like this. He went away, and you hung around, and bothered me every night. And when I wouldn't go out with you, you said things that weren't very nice. Anybody picking up on this? And where does the chorus then, where does it go after that? My boyfriend's back, and you're going to be in trouble. Hey, la, de la, my boyfriend's back. Here, let's make sure you understand the concept. The next line goes like this. You see him coming, better cut out on the double. Hey, la, de la. Good. You better, you've been spreading lies that I was untrue. Hey, la, de la. Look, so look out. He's coming after you. He's been gone for such a long time. Hey, la, de la. Good. I'm driving home the context. Here's the context of Matthew chapter 25, because it's not near as happy as this song. The context of Matthew 24 and 25 is this. If you were to turn your Bible over to Matthew chapter 24, you would see one of the most bizarre, uh, distressing passages in all of Scripture. This whole thing about the abomination of the desolation in which it appears that Jesus, meek and mild, sweet and sensitive Jesus, lays out a horrific picture of destruction and judgment. In other words, here's the point of chapters 24 and 25. The Lord is coming back. You've abused his creation. You have misused his gifts. You better watch out. The Lord is coming back. Matthew chapter 4 gives us not only this strange and distressing prophecy of a coming judgment, but then Jesus pops off a series of parables, one after another, that actually reflect upon the fact that, the God, that judgment is coming, that he will come back a second time in judgment. For example, one, one parable will talk about how the timing of the judgment will come unexpectedly. He will make it very clear that we don't know when the second coming will happen, when judgment will occur. So stop trying to figure out when he's going to come back. Don't know why people can't seem to get that. And he's quite plain that we don't need to be spending our time in this life trying to look at bizarre calendars and splicing scripture in a thousand different ways to figure out when he's coming back. Then he's got another parable. When he talks about, hey, when the judgment comes, it will, you have all this time to repent, but when the judgment comes, it will then be too late to repent. Then it transitions to, to, to chapter 25, and in Matthew chapter 25, it begins with a parable, what is known as the parable of the ten virgins. It's better, should be better put as the, ten, the parable of the ten wedding attendants. And the, it talks about them, about how they're, they're waiting for the bridegroom, and yet the issue there is that the bridegroom took much longer than expected to return. That they're, they're, we, we shouldn't necessarily, we don't know when he's going to come. He could come at any moment, but at the same time, he also could come and then when we least expect it, but also it could take for a long time for the judgment to come. And so the, the whole point of that parable is this you need to be ready, you need to be prepared. So, therefore, the logic of what is going on is there's a judgment coming, you don't know when it is. If it comes and you haven't repented, it's going to be too late. 
Therefore, you need to prepare. That's the logic of all the parables so far. And then that brings us to the parable of the talents. And it brings us to this question. If I'm supposed to prepare for judgment day, what does it look like? How do I prepare for a coming judgment day? How do I prepare for the Lord's return? That's the question. How do you whether a believer or a non-believer, but particularly for us who supposedly believe in Christ Jesus, how do you prepare for the Lord's return? That's the main question we're asking this morning. And here's how we're going to divvy up our time. First, we're going to answer it very clearly. We're going to give a plain answer, and then I'm going to give you three motivating factors for why you should live into the answer that I've given you, the answer that I believe the text communicates to us. So the question is this. How do we prepare for the Lord's return? And the answer of the parable of talents is this. Invest your life. Invest your life. That's the positive call. The negative call might be this. Don't waste your life. Don't waste your life on foolish things. Don't waste your life on a small life. 19 years ago this week, there was a pastor named John Piper who had been known for a book but had not busted onto the scene in great prominence in the evangelical world and circles. But 19 years ago this week, he went and spoke at a conference and a concert at Shelby Farms outside of Memphis, Tennessee. It was called One Day, and it was a gathering of about 50,000 college students. It became, it was the precursor to what you may now know as the Passion Conferences. It was essentially Woodstock for Christians. And he came and preached a sermon that became known through really through much of evangelicalism and was a watershed moment in the lives of many of those college students and the many people who heard the sermon since then. The title of the sermon was this, You Have One Life. Don't waste it. And he addressed the students and many who heard it. I remember hearing it for the first time in 2002. Many will never forget it. And in his talk, he urged them to make their lives count. As college students who have in many ways the perspective of life being in front of them, that they are to focus on investing their life in what really matters. It was a powerful message. And he began his talk and he said this, I know that not everyone in this crowd wants your life to make a difference. There are hundreds, if not thousands of you who don't care whether you make a lasting difference or do something great. You just want people to like you. If people would just like you, you'd be satisfied. Or if you could just have a good job with a good wife and a couple good kids and a nice car and long weekends and a few good friends and a fun retirement and a quick and easy death and no hell, if you could have all that minus God, then you'd be satisfied. He said, that is the greatest tragedy in the making. He then went on to give an illustration that Piper became famous for. It's called the seashell illustration, in which he read from an account from Reader's Digest about Bob and Penny, and here's what it said. He said, here's the great tragedy. Bob and Penny, they took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. Now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 50-foot trawler, they play softball, and they spend most mornings collecting seashells. The American dream, that's what we've been selling. 
The American dream, come to the end of your life, your one and only life, and let the great work of your life, as you have a given account to your creator at the end of all things, here are some seashells that I gathered in Punta Gorda, Florida. Understand this about this parable. This is the parable of the talents. The master gives five talents to one man, two talents to another, and one talent to another. Now, there are a couple of things we got, we got to make sure, clear here about what a talent is. A talent was indeed a unit of money. And when we hear talent, we think it's either a unit of money because of the text, or we think, well, talent. Talent in our language would be something I'm really, really good at. And so we're thinking, oh, this is either something I'm really good at or this is my money. So some of you might be thinking, if this is just money, well, I'm a kid. I don't really have to, you know, I don't have money yet. This isn't about me. Or, you know, I'm still trying to get even just, you know, good at brushing my teeth. I don't really have any talents yet. No, no, no. If it's about your talents and it's about your money, what the talent represents in this parable is your life. The whole of your life. Every moment of it. Peter Lightheart, who's a um, blogger and well-known writer, and wrote a blog called Pathos a couple years ago in an article in which he said this. He cited a survey or a stat that said that the average American teenage male spends 676 hours a year playing video games. That was the average, mind you, the average. So this isn't even talking about the, those who are really out of control. This is the average kid. And he went on to describe what one could do with 676 hours if you're 14, 15, 16, 17-year-old, put that to use in other ways. For example, he broke it down by hours. For example, you could learn the, the rudiments of French on Rosetta Stone. It would take you 205 hours, but you have plenty of hours to work with. You could learn to play the guitar, 260 hours, play a sport, 32 hours, learn salsa dancing, 40 hours. He said, in short, you 14, 15, and 16-year-old young men could become the most interesting man in the world. <laughs> you can salsa dance, you can play guitar, you're a great athlete. What girl wouldn't want that guy? Kids, middle schoolers, high school students, understand this. You have a life, and the question is, what are you living it, for, living it for? Oh, and you adults too. Life is a terrible thing to squander. A short life, a short life that appears to be cut short, is better, packed with purpose, than a long life that is wasted on the banal and the mundane and the foolish. One pastor gave this, was thinking through this whole process for his own life and what he wanted for his kids, and he talked about how a number of years ago his daughters came to him, one was in college and one was in high school, and they came to him and they said, we want to go work in Kenya in the slums there for the summer. And with all his heart, he said, I wanted to say no. That they, there was something better. They could come and work at the church where I was the pastor. You know, you can go do that after you've had children. And when you're 45, you can go work in the slums of Kenya, but not now. And then later on, as it moved towards the summer of that year, Al-Qaeda blew up the U.S. Embassy. And so the, the missions organization chose not to send teams there. And this father, this pastor, gave a hearty, Phew. good, now my daughters don't have to go there. 
Well, a few weeks later, the same missions agency called back and said, well, actually, we've been assessing the situation on the ground, and we've determined if all the parents will sign off on this, then the kids can actually go, and we'll, we'll carry through with the, with the summer plans. And he said, remember this question, remember this thinking, what if I sent my girls to that place where terrorism is rampant, and what if I lost one of them? But he said the conclusion as he sat there and thought about it was this, that he would rather have his children live short lives packed with purpose, serving the king, the king of all kings, than live long lives absent of any purpose. How are you spending your life? Let's review the story. There's a wealthy man, a prosperous man, and he's going to go on a very long and lengthy trip. Apparently, he's going to be gone probably for many, many years, and he's going to be gone for a long time, and so he needs some who will take care of his interests, look after his estate, his affairs in his home country, and so he takes his wealth, and he directs three of his servants, and he says he gives one servant five talents, and another servant two talents, and another servant one talent. Now, a talent was a large amount of money, and then the master goes away. And what does the first servant do? The first servant with the five talents goes and invests it. He puts it to work. And the man with the second talent does the same thing. As soon as the master leaves, he puts the money to work, and they both double their investments. But the third servant, the third servant buries it in the ground. This is, while banking will be mentioned later on, banking back then is an investment. It's more like live, you know, investing in the stock market for us today, that Jesus is going to mention. Banking, the true banking is, as we would understand banking today, would be burying it in the ground. The third servant buries the talent in the ground. He buries the money to preserve it. And then the master returns, and the first two servants are glad to see the master's back. And you can almost tell, like, they're giddy, they're excited to come and show the master, not only have we preserved what you gave us, but we have also invested it, and we have doubled our investment. And the master says, that is so great. You have been so faithful in this, and now I'm going to give you even greater responsibility, and you get to enjoy me and enjoy my approval and affirmation over you. He says it to the first servant, he says it to the second servant. Then the third servant comes and he says, look, master, you gave me one talent and I didn't lose any of it. Isn't that great? I didn't lose a single bit of, of, of your money. I have it all here. None of it is gone. The master says, wait, that is not what I asked you to do. It's not what I asked you to do. I gave you that money to be on mission and you didn't use the money for mission the servant, servant, third servant says, no, 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 no. And he essentially begins to blame the master. What does he say? I know you to be a really tough guy. I mean, you're kind of a harsh guy. And if things had gone badly, if the, if the things had, had, if it was an investment and it didn't go the way I thought it was going to go, then you would have been very harsh. And the master looks at him and says, you're a lazy and a worthless servant. And he throws him out of the house where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's clearly the same phrase, weeping and gnashing of teeth, is used of hell. It's clearly what Jesus is referring to here. The question for us, and it's an important question, is are you wasting your talents? Are you wasting the life that God has given to you? Invest your life. Invest your life in the king's purposes, in the king's, the things the king loves. Let me give you, give you two applications from this, or you drive this down to more, two specifics for this call to invest your life. The first I want to say is this, the implications of this call to invest your life. The first implication is that your life has significance in God's mission. 
It has significance. I think as we, as we read these, this parable, and frankly, you might have a little bit of PT, parable PTSD after the last two months. These parables are hard, in which you're a little bit gun-shy after a little bit here in these parables. And I think the emotional internal response that some have to a parable like this is, well, what difference can I make? I'm clearly the one-talent guy. I'm clearly the one talent. I mean, I have my one measly little talent. What can I achieve? What can I do for God and his kingdom? Who am I to think that I could do anything of any great worth that matters to an almighty God? Well, actually, that is precisely what the story, what Jesus is forbidding us to think like. That we are in, we are, he's forbidding us to think that we are inconsequential in God's mission. We may be small, but our individual servants is of, service is of immense importance to God. So much so that it will be decisive in your judgment. We may have different talents and abilities, but you will notice this, that the first and second servant both produced at the same rate, both, but they both produced at different levels of revenue. One guy produced five, one guy produced two, but both receive the same exact commendation. You see, it's about faithfulness. It's about faithfulness. So I mean faithful to investing your life. Now, everyone listening to this should say this. I know I have a part to play in God's mission. He has invested in me greatly to be a part of his mission in this world. He has given me a talent, and he has been generous in giving me these talents, and giving me this life that is to be lived for him. I have a part to play in God's mission to the world. Are you playing it? Do you even know what your part to play is? Do you know what your part to play is? Have you even thought about it? Have you thought about the honor it is that God has, has called you as, as he, not just his child, but his ambassador, as his person who is to be a steward in this world of his kingdom purposes? What an honor that is. Have you thought about the question, why do you exist? Could you write it down if I were to ask you? And not some generic version where you quote from me from 1 Corinthians about you do all things for the glory of God. No, no, no. I mean what your purpose is. What has God specifically given you to do? Not a generic answer. Listen, God has given you a great thing, a great task, and you know what? You're the only person who can do it. You have a part to play in his kingdom Get, make, would, you, would you make your answer specific? Students, would you seek to make your answer specific? Even if you don't know, but you say, right now, right here, these are the places, these are the people that I'm seeking to reach. This is the place geographically I'm trying to reach. This is the place where I'm seeking to bring God's kingdom to bear in this world. I love this. Last summer, Claire Paquette went overseas to Kenya. And while she, by many of us would go overseas to do short-term missions work, and she was definitely doing that, the classic kind of things that you would do overseas. But what I loved about the way Claire spent her summer last year was this, is she has a belief and a call, and a reform belief, which is this, is that God has not called all of us to do what I do, but we all have our parts to play within his kingdom. And that if you're a writer, then you should be a writer to the glory of God and for his kingdom. If you're a farmer, then you should do it for his glory and for his kingdom. And she has a love for writing, and so she wouldn't follow people around and she wrote about what she saw because we need people who can write in a way that is beautiful about the work that God is doing around the world that is a specific call get specific about what God is calling you to individually you are small 
Oh, but together in all of our drops make something grand. You know, over the Andes Mountains, rain falls one drop at a time. But what's at the bottom of the Andes Mountains? As that water, one drop of a time, rushes slowly and surely down to a great and grand rapid, an all-consuming river that will change everything around it. You play your part in God's mission. Second, what this means to invest your life is God calls us to take risks. God calls us to take risks. The third servant never risks. He just wanted to make sure nothing happened to the talent he had been given. God, you've given me this life. I've got to hold it. The Christian life for many of you is simply an issue of what you are not doing. As long as you are not committing the big sins, and as long as you're, not, you're doing your best to follow the rules and to conform to a church community, as long as you, as you don't listen to the bad music or get into some bad relationships, then that is all good. Listen, Jesus died for more, for more than you to have just simply a moral life. How are you investing your life to see, accomplish the things that God has called you to participate in in this world? Hear this hard truth. This is a hard truth. And this is the hard truth of the parable. Some of you in this room will die as good church people who never attempted anything good for the kingdom of God. You kept the rules. You were a good citizen, but you never attempted anything for the kingdom of God. You never shared your faith. You never gave sacrificially in such a way that you actually had to adjust one iota of your standard of living. Listen to this man. Now, we look at this and we think, this is not that big of a deal, right? Like, Okay, he did almost like the right conservative thing. He didn't want to lose the master's money. He simply put it away. He hid it in a briefcase and shoved it under the bed with a bunch of IUs. He didn't, he didn't blow this on drugs. He didn't blow this on loose living, no. But yet he was condemned for it. He was condemned for what he had not done. But here you see that wickedness can apply as much, to not just to the moral failure, but it can apply to those who fail to invest their life for the glory of God. Let me apply, apply this not just on the personal level, but on the corporate level for us. You see, this would be like a church with, say, 300 people in it. A church, and God gives them a building, and he gives them people who are equipped to understand the word and to the mission, and he gives them counselors and caregivers and God says, now go and take what you've been invested in you and go and do mission. And then God comes back 20 years later and there's 250 people in that church still. And they say, we have learned the Bible and we have lived good lives and the world around us has become, you know, morally it's decaying and it's worldly and everything's just going to pot around us. And there's other churches and they've gotten really big but they're super shallow, but not us. Not us, we are very holy. Look how small we are. We have to be holy. A few of us died. Yes, a few of us moved away, but we are, we're pure. Aren't, we proud? Aren't you proud of us? We've preserved the faith. What would Jesus say? He would say all around you are homeless people and people in prison and children in foster care and kids who need to be adopted and college students being deceived by slithering scholars and over-sexualized sorority sisters who have come and led others astray. And what have you done? What have you done? We've, we've held on over here. You hid what I gave you. You hid what I gave you. 
We are called by God out of talent hiding and into risk taking. Listen, there is a, there is a world of thinking right now that is, that is pervading into the church. And there is a part of it, there, it, is, it is taken from some good things the Bible says about rest and Sabbath keeping and having space and understanding that you are not Jesus. And yet, you know what? I think it's actually being taken by some and it's being utilized as a saying, I am going to be protect myself. It comes in the language of treat yourself. And it comes in the language of you just need to get some more rest and you just need to have safe places and you need to just feed yourself. It's all about self-preservation. Now listen, there is a place for that. There's a place for that. But listen, we are not a people who are called to simply preserve ourselves. If you seek to save your life in this world, then guess what? You will lose it in the next. But if you lose your life in this world, you save it in the next. The servants, they, they take risks, these first two. right? The whole idea of investments. Everybody, anybody who's been involved in the stock market for the last 10 years understand that there is risk involved with investing. But yeah, what do we see? They made 100% profit. Now, what are the kind of investments in which you make 100% profits? Are they super, are they the kind of things that you, you base mutual funds around? Oh, no, 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 no. No, this is speculative trading. This is venture capitalism. You make 100% profit, this is the kind of investment where you might lose everything because of this. This is a great risk. You know, I mentioned it before, one of the driving emotions, I think that some here in this parable is, they look at it and they go, I'm a one-talent person, I just feel small. But the other driving emotion I think people experience as they hear this parable is fear. The question that comes up is, is the investment of my life yielding enough profits? They, list, they hear this and they go, oh my goodness, there's this guy with the five and there's this guy with the two and they doubled and uh, how, much am I, am I, how much am I yielding? I'm, I'm not sure, maybe, I'm like, if anything, like 1.1%. I mean, that's, it's bad. It's, it's no bueno. It's, it's a, it's a, if there's an investment, man, all my investments aren't coming back too great. But understand this. If you read carefully in this passage and if you actually read the parallel account also in Luke 19, you'll see this that we were never commanded to make a profit. That doesn't appear to be the master's issue. The issue here is that there's not a profit. In fact, in Luke's version of the story, in Luke 19, they're simply told to go and do business. They're not necessarily told to be successful. They're just told to go invest it. You see, you understand this, that you are playing with house money. He doesn't need you to be profitable. He uses you to become profitable often, but he doesn't need you to be profitable. What can you point to in your life and say, I am willing to risk that for the sake of the gospel? That. Or are you minimizing risk because you don't trust the master enough to completely live under his instruction? Where is fear preventing you from following your master fully? To be obedient to this parable and the call here to invest your life means that you have to be willing to take some risks for the kingdom of God. Throughout the Bible, those who were called the Hall of Fame in Hebrews chapter 11 are a group of people who took what? They took risks. Risks. Inherent with risk is you don't know what the future is gonna hold. Guess what? God can't take risks, but you can. 
Abraham took risks. God says, hey, Abraham, I know you're a wealthy, rich kid here living in this great land of Ur. I want you to leave. Leave. David and Goliath, hey, David, I'm going to call you to be the king. Yeah, that means Saul's going to come after you, try to cut off your head, and I'm going to eventually, I'm going to have you fight this, this giant, and you're going to have to hang out in the wilderness for a long time. There's risk. Jonathan, you remember the great story of Jonathan and his armor bearer? They see, they see the military of the Philistines across the way, and Jonathan goes, you know what? We should go beat them. And he simply takes him and his armor bearer, and they defeat like a whole, a whole battalion of Philistine soldiers. Noah and the ark, 120 years of building an ark. When people didn't even know what a boat was. Oh, Noah, what are you investing your life in? A boat? Huh. I don't know what a boat is. Yeah, there's going to be a lot of rain one day. Oh. Okay. Queen Esther. She comes in the presence of the king to plead the life of her people. It deserved death. She risked it. Paul's life was one risk after another. All the great heroes of the faith, they risk. What are the risks to which God is calling you? Some of them may be obvious. I mean, we hear about, heard about it today. It's lauded in this church left and right. For some of you, the risk that God is calling you to do is to be a part of foster care, to be a part of do- adoption. For some of you, God's calling you to give more. For some of you, God is calling you to go, to go, to go, to go. I'm not sure if I can say it with full honesty that I truly believe it, but there's an instinct in me that wants to say this, that if you have graduated from college and you don't know God's specific direction on your life, if you have not gotten precise about that, then bail on it and go to be, be involved in missions somewhere for a couple years. That's what happened to me. I said, I don't know what I'm supposed to do after this. I know I'm going to go to the ministry route. I don't know if I'm supposed to go to seminary. Well, that, forget it. I'm going to go overseas for a couple of years. And you know what? It took about three months. And God told me very clearly what I was supposed to be doing. You go and you get involved. You go. Share your faith. That would be a risk for some of you. Start a nonprofit. Some of you have got great skills and abilities. And you need to use those for the kingdom of God and the broken places of our world. For some of you, my goodness, now this is going to sound odd. But for some of you, the great risk that you need to take in your life is to go to counseling and to risk opening up that part of your story again that is so deeply painful, but that part of who you are is killing your marriage. And to be willing to risk vulnerability and to be authentic in front of your spouse would actually mean great kingdom work for your marriage and for your children's life. For a young single man, maybe actually asking women out on a date that take risk, takes risks. Fathers, fathers moving towards wayward daughters and sons. Had, had a situation this year where we have a, a young person in our church who's running away from the faith as fast as they can. The elders met with this father, and there was no pursuit, no pursuit. And the call from the elders to this man was, hey, you need to chase after her. Chase her. Run her down. You be the father that pursues. Is it, is it going to be painful? It's going to be very painful. It's going to be very painful. That when your, your teenager is mad at you and hates you and cusses you, that's the moment you move in, not the time when you back off. So what is the Lord calling you? What risks is he calling you to take for his kingdom and for his glory? That's the answer. Invest your life. Don't waste it. Second part of our time together, the motivations. The parable gives us three motivations. 
three motivations, three lines of thinking to drive you to live your life in this way, to call you to say, yes, I will not be someone who will waste my life. I will invest my life for the kingdom of God. John Piper in that same talk said this, you don't have to know a lot of things for your life to make a lasting difference in the world, but you do have to know a few great things that matter and then be willing to live for them and die for them. So what are those few things? And I think this parable gives them to us. What are the truths that should motivate you to invest your life? Truth one is God's generous character. The sin of the third servant and the differences between the first and second servant and the third servant ultimately did not come down on the ability of them to invest wisely and well. The issue comes down as to how they view the master himself. He wrongly imputes to the master. When the master comes and confronts him and says, what, you didn't, you didn't even invest it in a bank? He says, what does he look? He looks at the master and says, I know you're a hard man. There's actually similar language here to the very words that were used of Pharaoh while the people of Israel were enslaved in Egypt. The Pharaoh says, make more bricks, use less straw, be more profitable, be more fruitful, produce more, have more return on your investment. And that's how this man is viewing the master. What is he afraid of? His greatest fear is ultimately not losing the investment. His greatest fear is the character of the master. The problem with the third servant is he doesn't know the goodness and the character and the graciousness of our Lord's. People are afraid of what the master might require of them, of what the Lord might require of them, who are afraid of what the Lord might think of them if they don't succeed, quote unquote, and so they minimize risks as much as possible. There are people who do as much risk management as they possibly can because they do not trust the Lord to do good by them, to be gracious to them. And the sad truth for so many of you is that you live your life afraid of God, afraid of God. You say, yeah, right, we're supposed to be afraid of God, right? Proverbs, the beginning of wisdom, uh, the beginning of, of, of wisdom is the fear of God. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Yeah, it's the beginning, it's not the end. It's the beginning, it's not the end. It leads you to what is right and what is good. You know, Amazing Grace has it best in regards to that issue. Amazing Grace has this powerful line, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved." See, some of you are still living in a functioning with a God in which you're just simply afraid of him and you haven't seen the graciousness of his character. And what this shows is that you know you're something you haven't learned about who your God is, that you don't know the heart of your God for you. You can hear the generosity, though, of, this, of, this, of the God in this parable if you'll hear the word talent rightly. There's a generosity here. And it actually undercuts that whole thing I was saying earlier about how some of us say, well, I'm just a one-talent person. You know, a talent was the largest increment of money in the ancient world. It was equivalent to 20 years income. Most scholars say it's equivalent to our, our modern language today of saying one talent is equal to $1 million. $1 million. Therefore, even the lowest of us are one million dollar men and women, which God has invested. He has been gracious to us. He has given us to us generosity. The heart of God is immense generosity to you. Five million, two million, one million. God has entrusted us with something of immense value. You know what that is? You know what it is? The word entrust is used here in this text. You know, the, the way in which entrust is primarily used in the New Testament by all the other writers of the New Testament is it usually speaks of the gospel message. Paul says, I have been entrusted 
What is the one million dollar entrusting stewardship that God has given to you? The gospel. One for you to own it and possess it and steward it and understand God's graciousness and love in my life and then also to communicate it to other people. Paul says this, he goes into great lengths in various places like Romans chapter 8 verse 31 through 39 to communicate to us the graciousness of God's gospel. And the cross reveals how God feels about you. Did you know that? His generosity to you. Why would I not feel safe when God has been this generous to me? Why would I not invest my life when God has invested his son into me? If the cross reveals how God feels about the world, why would I not ask for God to do great things through my life? Man, that would be a great thing to do. Ask God to do great things in your life. So first, do you know the generous character of your God? Are you, are you functioning out of a, a place of fear? Or are you functioning out of the fact that you're playing with house money that has been steered to you by a gracious and generous God? Second thing, you, you need the grand truth you need to understand and know that would drive you to give your life is you need to heed God's warnings you need to heed God's warnings. So you know, you know God's gracious character. You also need to heed God's warnings. The servant who does not invest his life will be thrown into the place of darkness and weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's hell. This parable is scary. It is scary in particular because it's referring to hell here. But it's also scary because of who gets thrown out. Real quick, let's go back. It, let's ask this question again. All he did was just put it under the ground. He didn't lose the master's money. He didn't waste it, so to speak. I mean, the master got back what he had given. The real surprise, the shocker of this parable is that the third servant is condemned. Let me see if I can, if I can understand our, the conundrum people have with this parable with an actual false gospel that was written after this. There was a, a false gospel in the second century called the Gospel of the Nazarene in which the gospel, this, this particular writer, took this parable and actually decided to add a few things in it. He wanted to help Jesus because he didn't think Jesus was clear enough on this third servant. And here's what he says. He said, he said, in this book, the writer, he improves on it, and he says this, this description of the third worker, he says, we are told that the third worker squanders his money on harlots and flute players. In other words, what is the, this writer trying to do? He's undercutting the power of the message, which is this. Those who waste their lives are those who wasted on harlots and apparently flute players. But that is apparently a really scandalous thing. You see, we are, but we already have a parable like that. It's called the parable of the prodigal son, in which somebody squanders the investment and the inheritance they've been given. That's not actually what's going on here. We already have a parable about immoral failures. This guy isn't a moral failure. That's what's so scary about it. Who is Jesus talking about here? Jesus is talking about those who have been given to him a task and a job, and yet they have viewed life as being careful, comfortable, and they have become complacent people. Kind of sounds like the American church. Do you see who this person is? He is someone who acknowledges that the master is Lord. He acknowledges that the master is in charge. That he's supposed to keep and protect his life for the sake of the master. This guy is in community group. This guy goes to church. This guy talks about Jesus being the king. This guy talks about when it comes to the issues of life, he thinks he, he trusts in the Lord. But when it comes to actually how he's going to live out his life, and it says give all your life for the sake of the gospel, he says that's a bit too far. That's a bit too far. 
In the end, Jesus calls this man wicked and slothful, and he casts him out. This man sounds far lower like the ones of us sitting in the church than the ones who are out there hanging out with the flute players and the harlots. See, what happens when you don't take risks? We have an example of this. Israel, Israel was called to take a risk. God had said he brings them out of slavery to Egypt. He gives them food. He gives them provision. He gives them his law. He says, we're going straight to the promised land. They get there to the promised land. They're about to go in. They send 12 spies in. Ten of them come back and say, it's really big, scary people. And two of them say, that's it. That's right. They are big and scary, but God's got this. And the 10 convince everybody. They believe the 10, and they go, yeah, we're not going in. And what happens? That whole generation dies, and they don't get to go in the promised land. Understand this, risking your life is dangerous, but not risking your life is more dangerous. It's more dangerous. And that is exactly what Jesus, why Jesus tells scary stories. You ever wonder that? Why? These parables seem to have a lot of hell in them. I mean, aren't we, I'm really going to be happy to be done with the parables in this part of it, having to explain this week in and week out. Why does Jesus tell, tell such scary stories well, for the same reason that children tell scary stories to one another around a campfire, to keep themselves awake. Jesus tells these stories like this because Jesus loves us too much to allow us to become complacent and comfortable people. And he wants us to wake up and recognize, hey, and ask the question, am I investing my life in the kingdom? Are you listening? Do you understand that whether you invest your life, that this is a matter of life and death, a matter of heaven and hell? Are you listening? Do you believe him? Third major motivation, third third major truth you need to grasp if you're gonna give your life, and that's God's joy. So we've had God's gracious character, God's warnings, and lastly, God's joy. Verse 21 said this, but the the man with the five talents and the man with the two talents, they come and they give them and they show them their investments and what they'd earned. The master said this, well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little and I will set you over month, a much. Enter into the joy of your master. Once again, I want to point it out in case some of you are concerned. I'm not doing a really good job investing. I'm not seeing a whole lot of profits. The commendation comes for both the two and the five. It is not a matter of your capacities. It's a matter of your faithfulness. And Jesus celebrates people based on their faithfulness. Now, we're all sweating here because of the last point, God's warning. You know, you you ever passed going too fast, a state trooper? What immediately begins to happen to your heart rate? Oh, please, please don't turn out. Please don't turn out. Please don't turn out. Please, no lights. That's what a lot of us are thinking after that last point. Man, this is a boom, 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 boom parable. Well, how do, how do we become worthy servants? Well, you aren't. You aren't. Who does get, we deserve to get cast out into the outer darkness, the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's what we deserve. Now, in the Bible, who did get cast out into the outer darkness? Someone is cast out instead of us. See, we're the ones who deserve to be cast out because we haven't invested our whole life for the Lord. We we are the ones, we don't deserve to hear God look at us and say, well done, my good and faithful servants. Isn't there sometimes a crock when you go to a funeral and someone says that about the person that died and you're like, what, this dude? 
this guy, this guy, I mean, this guy didn't do hardly anything with his life. He gets to hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. Why does he get to hear, well done, my good and faithful servant? Because there was one who actually did invest his entire life. He gave it all. But he was the one that was cast out. This is the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel is this, is that God said, man, I look out there and there ain't no faithful servants. There ain't nobody investing like this. And so he sends Jesus to invest his life on our behalf and call us to himself. And for those who put their faith and trust in him, for us, for us, there is nothing but commendation. For him, he received our condemnation. We get his commendation, which means what Jesus ought to have received, you receive. So when you come into heaven, you know what you get to hear one day? Well done, my good and faithful servants. Well done, my good and faithful servant, because that's what Jesus deserved to say, to hear. Don't you want to hear that? Listen, some of, you, some of you in this room, you have longed for someone to say something like that to you. It may not sound so Bible-ish. Maybe it will come across more profound. Maybe if I said it something like this to some of you men. Men, you are faithful. And you have done well. And your father loves you. Man, some of you have lived your whole life. You would, you would die if your father would say that to you. Well, guess what? That's what's waiting you in heaven. That one day, Paul says this in Philippians chapter three. He says, I strive, not that I've already taken hold of it, but to take hold of it one day, and therefore I strive. What will motivate you to give your life now is that one day what is waiting for you, whether your investments in this life pan out or not, whether you appear to be a success at the end of your life or not, if you're investing your life in the kingdom of God and for his glory, what is awaiting you at the end of life is this, Jesus coming to you and saying, and the Father coming to you and saying, hey, I got something to tell you. I respect you so much. You have done well, and I love you for it. And you're gonna say, who, me? Who, me? And he's gonna say, yeah, come enter my joy. You know what that means? What that means is this. That word enter actually means experience. That you, mean, you get to experience the joy of the Father's words of approval over you. Well done, well done, well done. Man, what good news. That's the inheritance that is waiting you. A Father who would approve of you day in and day out and who would leave you simply saying, what did I do? And he'll look at you and say, you have been faithful. Let me end with this. I gave this illustration a couple years ago, but it's been a while, so we'll give it again to send us out. There's a man named David Ireland who wrote a number of years ago um, some letters. So he had neuromuscular disease, and he was first detected in his left, book, his left foot when it, it began to drag, and slowly this neuromuscular disease affected his whole body, and eventually it took his life. But during the time... When he was wheelchair-bound, doctors discovered that his wife was pregnant. Doctors had told him that he may not survive to see the birth of the child, that his, the growth of this, this disease was taking over his body so quickly that the convergence of when his wife would give birth that he probably would not make it to that day. And so he began to write letters to what would be his little boy, although I didn't know that at the time, and he wrote letters as a parent to his child as one who didn't know him. And after his death, they were published by his wife entitled Letters to an Unborn Child. 
And in this letter, he writes about his wife, and he's talking about how fabulous she is. And he says, I want to introduce you to your mother, because if I don't give her the full credit a husband is supposed to give to his wife, then it is not likely that you will fully understand what an, un, what an incredible person your mother is. And then he said, hey, let me describe her this way. When we do something simple, apparently motivated by me, like going to a restaurant, this is what must, must, what must happen for us to do that. First, she must take me to the restroom and disconnect my urine and fecal bags and empty them into the toilet. Then she's going to push me into a stand-up shower and lift up the arm of the wheelchair, lay down a board and slide me across to the seat, lift up the board, put down the arm of the wheelchair, fold the chair back, back it out, turn on the shower, bathe me. When that is finished, she dries me, she wheels the chair back up, she pulls up the yarn, she lays down the board, she slides me across, she reconnects my urine and fecal bags, she dresses me, she combs my hair, she tightens my tie, she wheels me outside beyond the garage. After she has dressed me entirely, even my socks, she lifts up the garage door, backs out the car, opens the door, pushes me to the door, lifts up the chair arm, puts down the board, slides me across, buckles me in, shuts the door, lifts the trunk. I watch her put the wheelchair in, she closes the trunk. She gets in the car, she drives us to the restaurant. Then she does it all again. She gets out of the car, opens the trunk, gets the wheelchair out, Shuts the trunk and repeats, he repeats in the letter. She comes to the door, opens the door, lifts the arm, lays down the board, slides me across, pushes down the arm, closes the door. He says, we go into the restaurant. She pushes me into the restaurant. We eat. She wipes the drool from my mouth. She pays the bill. She pays the tip. She takes me back out and we do the whole thing all over again. Then we get home. Disconnect the urine and fecal bag, empty them, bathes me, puts on my pajamas, puts me into bed, and this is how she finishes. This is what she says to me at the end of the night. Honey, thank you for taking me out to eat tonight. Someday if you're a Christian, you may look at your life and you're going, I don't know what I'm doing. Yeah, you're doing about as much as David Ireland was doing giving your whole life, and you don't have much to give maybe. Maybe it's just one talent. And yet God's gonna come to you at the end of all things, and this is the joy that you get to live into and move towards is he's gonna come to you and say, well done, my good and faithful servant. He's gonna give you credit that you don't deserve, and you're gonna say, are you kidding? You did everything. He's gonna say, yeah, but you joined me in it, and you gave your life for me and for my kingdom I have made you worthy. Now sit in my feet and let me bask in you for all of eternity because I made you and I enjoy you. Now enjoy being enjoyed. Let's pray. Oh, gracious God. Um, The call to give our lives away is a heavy call, and Lord, it, it almost immediately confronts us with guilt and our failings. God, instead of confronting us with our guilt and our failings, I pray that, Lord, that we would be flooded by your graciousness, that we would have the perspective of the first two servants who understood you to be a gracious God, and we live out of the wonder of your grace to us, the wonder that is behind us and the wonder of the grace that is before us in heaven. We live in light of those things. 
and take heed to your warnings in between. That you would keep us awake, keep us moving towards you, keep us investing for the glory of your name. We ask in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.